This is episode 12 of the Investors Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is the Investors Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. Welcome, everybody, to episode 12 of the Investors Podcast. This is Preston Pish, and I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson. And today, we have a very exciting guest that's going to be talking to us about the psychology of stock investing. Uh, today's guest is Ravi Mehta, and he's the author of the book, The Emotionally Intelligent Investor. His book talks about how uh, self-awareness, empathy, and intuition drive performance in your investments, and I'm sure that that's something that everybody wants to learn more about. Um, if you're interested in learning more about Ravi's incredible book, which uh, Stig and I have both read, um, we're going to have that link in the show notes, and you can also uh, pull that up in our book club page that we have. So um, a little bit about Ravi. So he graduated summa cum laude from the Wharton School of Business, which everyone knows is the best business school in the entire world. And he's uh, worked on numerous multi-billion dollar hedge funds through his career uh, to include Karsh Capital Management and also the Soros Fund Management. Uh, so to put it lightly, uh, we're really thrilled to have him on the show today because uh, he brings a wealth of information and has had the opportunity to learn from some of the best and brightest investors of all time. So, uh, Ravi, is there anything else you wanted to add or highlight that maybe that I missed? Uh, well, the only other thing is I, I started my own investment firm about a year and a half ago. It's called Nishikama Capital. Nowhere near the multi-billion dollar funds that I worked for before, but uh, it's been, uh, been a very exciting time. Well, that's that's a great point because what we can do is we'll also add a link to uh, your funds uh, page. So if people are interested in maybe even investing in your fund, they can uh, pull that up right through the show notes. So we'll have that available as well. Thanks so, for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to have you. So uh, Stig, uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, ask the first question here for Ravi? Okay, Ravi. And also, thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show. Okay, so uh, Ravi, I know that you have worked with, uh, with George Soros. Uh, what would you say is his two greatest strengths as an investor? Uh, yeah, first let me let me preface this by saying that when I was at Soros, I was in my mid twenties and I was uh, a relatively junior person there, so I didn't have a, a ton of interaction with him uh, directly. But uh, you know, I, I obviously worked with people that uh, did have a lot of interaction with him. It was also a time when he was um, focusing more on his philanthropy. But I, I would say. That, Two greatest strengths were, were that one, he, he would always bet big when he had conviction. Um, so he was very good about uh, sizing up his highest conviction ideas uh, at the right time. And the, the other um, great thing about him was that I think he was very self-aware and was very good at listening to his intuition. Uh, you know, I, heard, I heard a lot of stories about how, for example, he would change his mind on specific investments when he had um, back pain. And people often experience actually physical symptoms when they're anxiety present. and Investors can have anxiety when their investments, they don't really have a lot of conviction in the investments or they, maybe they realize something fundamentally has changed, but they didn't get out of the investment. And, and so he, he was very good at recognizing that his back pain was linked to those times when, his, uh, when he should be changing his decision. I, I think that's fascinating because I know personally, there's many times when you can't put some type of quantitative um, numbers to maybe your decision or your thought process, and you're really basing it on qualitative feel. And it's amazing how often that has steered me personally in the right direction. And I'm sure that Ravi, you have the exact same experience. And I know Stig has the same experiences where 
you necessarily can't say that, oh, well, the value of something I calculated at this is driving me down the path. It's just totally off of feel. And you're saying that that was one of Soros's greatest strengths that you kind of saw. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, not only did he size uh, his uh, highest conviction ideas at the right time, but he all, would also get out of a lot of losing positions uh, early. Those are the two greatest strengths. Yeah. That's fascinating. Hey, so um, in the book, I love this discussion that you had provided um, on support levels and resistance levels. And I think that it's something that a lot of people might not necessarily understand. Is that something that you could describe to our audience in a little bit more detail so they understand uh, what that's all about? Sure. You know, there, there are two types of investors. They're the kind that uh, believe in technical analysis, and they, they mainly believe in it because uh, they've seen it work. A lot of them don't actually know why it works. And then the second camp is the, uh, the camp that just kind of weights technical analysis with, you know, picking stocks on a Ouija board or something or, you know, like black magic. And because they just don't understand why it would possibly work. I was, to be frank, I was, in, I was in that second camp for a long time until I started, you know, seeing how technical analysis was actually was a, a helpful predictor of, of stock movements. And then I tried to basically try to understand why. And it's, it's really rooted in behavioral finance. So you talked about support and resistance levels. Those are the two of the most important things in technical analysis. And they're both linked to behavioral finance. So for example, the stock is at $100 for a long period of time, and then it goes down to $97. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people that bought the stock around $100. And there's a bias that a lot of people have that they don't want to realize a loss. And so there's a lot of people that are waiting for the stock to go back to $100 before they're going to sell. And so that's created resistance level at $100. So I, I think there's a practical example right now that you're seeing in the market with IBM. And I hate to use like current event because a lot of our listeners are listening to this in the future. But um, IBM, when Buffett bought IBM, I want to say he got in at like the 165-ish range, something like that, maybe 167 right. or something like that. And so you saw a ton of people from the market start flooding the market at that price point in the $160 range. And so, obviously, as the as the supply and demand changed on the on the picket, it, it went up. Um, you saw it up over two hundred dollars. And then recently, they had this this past earnings call where they basically, you know, had a lot of things that came off their balance sheet onto their income statement. And, and you saw no earnings basically reported for this last quarter. And you saw the thing plummet. And you saw the thing plummet right back down to that one hundred and sixty five dollar price point. And I it was funny because that just happened recently within this month and reading your book and I saw what you were talking about with these support levels and uh, resistance levels, it reminded yeah. me exactly of that scenario that, that you were talking about in the book. Yeah. I mean, and also support level is also linked to behavioral finance. So, so for example, when if a stock is at, let's say, $50 for a long period of time, and you know a lot of people bought the stock around $50, then it goes to 55 uh, All those people that bought it at 50 uh, made money. And a lot of them might have sold at 55 or reduced their position at 55, but they, they've associated a positive outcome by buying it at 50. And so that's called association bias. And so even if something changes fundamentally with the stock, they have a bias to want to buy it back or, or add to their position that they might have trimmed uh, back at 50. Ravi, uh, I can't help to think, um, and you know, I, I might be completely off here, but some of the audience might think that speaking about technical analysis, that is they short-sighted where if you look at like more fundamental, more classic value investing techniques, that is more long-term thinking. Would you think that is that would be presumptuous to uh, to see it that way? Uh, 
no, because um, technical analysis can be used, you know, by long-term investors as well. So some of the things I'm talking about, right, probably people in IBM who are going to hold their stock for multiple years because they just don't want to realize the loss. And so that resistance level, that can stay around for a long time. So Ravi, I like to uh, tell people that I think that my two greatest assets are my time and my intuition. In your book, you give intuition a lot of focus, and you even talked about it already with the uh, Soros uh, comment. Uh, can you give the audience the best advice for honing your intuition? Like, how do you know when it's something like with Soros? You said it was his back, and how can other people hone this skill, this intuition that you talk about in the book? Um, so, intuition is just pattern recognition. That's the first thing to kind of just understand what intuition is. Um, so, for example, you know, I used to play a lot of chess, and um, uh, chess players heavily rely on intuition. They can't possibly think about every possible move that, um, that that's available to them, right? So they 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 look at the, how the pieces laid on the board, and they recognize certain patterns um, just from their experience of what's successful and what's not. And so they rely on their gut instinct to kind of evaluate a specific type of move, and then they spend most of their time just safeguarding, making sure that that specific move is safe. And um, you know, I think that the best investors do something similar. Um, you know, Warren Buffett doesn't uh, look at every possible investment that's out there. He tends to gravitate because of his experiences. He knows what he's good at. He gravitates towards certain investment ideas, and then he spends majority of time making sure those investment ideas have downside protection and good risk reward characteristics. One of the things that you broke out in the book, uh, Ravi, was that you don't necessarily have to have a lot of experience. So I think for a lot of the people that are listening, they don't have the experience that you have or like ten years of experience. So Maybe to, to transition into your discussion into that point. So, you know, it's pattern recognition, but you don't necessarily have to have 20 years of experience. And, and you talk about that in the book. And I think it was a great point. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests to the maintenance to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. 
Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Yeah, so I think there's certain things that people are good at, right, or good at recognizing. People already have, even if they're not professional investors, a lot of them have intuition of what's going to be successful, what kind of businesses are going to be successful, and what aren't. And, and the key is, the, the most important thing is to invest in what you understand. So I think too many people wind up getting out of their circle of competency, and they wind up you know, investing in biotech stocks or something they have no idea about. And you, know, you don't need to have a view on everything out there, right? You just need to invest in areas you know well and patterns that you recognize are successful. It's kind of like uh, whenever I go out with my wife and I go across and I see maybe a business that I really like, I tell her, I think that this business is going to be wildly successful and you're not really basing it on much. You're just kind of basing it on gut. And a perfect example would be uh, Chipotle. Like you go in there and the food's fantastic. It's a really simple model. Just You just know that that business as it continues to expand is going to be successful. So I, is that kind of more of what you're kind of referring to as far as your intuition and pattern analysis of sticking to things that you understand and your competency? Exactly. Great. So uh, let's, uh, let's continue to, uh, to speak about emotions because there's really strong part in your book or actually several uh, strong points in your book where you're talking about um, us as investors being influenced by our emotions. Uh, and I think I can definitely testify to that, and I know Preston can do as well. But do you have like like um, the secret to how we can apply this to our advantage, and definitely not to uh, to our disadvantage, as for instance we saw under the uh, the financial crisis? Uh, yeah, first step is self awareness. You know, every, everybody has these certain behavioral biases that um, impact our investment decisions. Best way to understand what biases you have is by going over where you maybe lost money or understanding your prior mistakes and, and seeing if they have a pattern. For example, some people tend to take extra risks after they've had a, some good returns in their portfolio. Other people take extra risks after they have uh, losses in their portfolio. The only way to really understand which camp you're in is by uh, going over your past mistakes. You know, one of the things I like most about investing is that it's a vehicle for self-analysis. And uh, you know, I'm constantly learning things about myself and then incorporating what I learned about myself into my investment process. For example, I wrote in my book that I have this bias towards selling my winners too early. You know, this this linked to my um, fear of regret. Right? I would rather lock in a gain, even a small one, than feel regretful uh, for having a potential loss. Fear of regret can also lead me to have too many positions. I would rather have at least a small position than regret um, missing out on on a specific stock going up. And so, understanding that about myself has changed my investment process. So I have specific rules for when I can sell a stock and I can't sell a stock just because it's up 
and and then the other rule, right, to avoid having too many positions and over diversifying is I have a limit to how many uh, positions I can have in my, in my portfolio, and I also try to make sure that my top ten positions are are a minimum percentage of my fund. Okay. Uh, another thing I actually would like to return to is uh, is loss because uh, you said that sometimes you're behaving irrational when you are locking in uh, gains, but how is it that we as people act to losses in general? And because uh, you have this great example of it, Kahneman and Tversky in your uh, in your book, um, so could you please just uh, very quickly elaborate on you know how do investors typically react to losses? Um, Different investors react differently. Um, most people tend, to, you know, losses make people unhappy. And there's always there's a lot of research out there that when people are, are unhappy, they tend to take less risk. But then, the, actually, some other people, when they when they have losses, they actually increase their the risk profile. Um, they add to their losing positions, even if something fundamentally might have changed with the stock. So it depends on the person. I don't think there's a specific rule you can you know apply. That this is why self awareness is really important. So uh, that's a great point, Ravi. In chapter five, you talk about why it's important to match your personality to your investment style. So if you think you're just going to go out and be like Warren Buffett, that might not even be possible because of the way that your personality and the way that you're wired might not match the same wiring that maybe Buffett has. And you might be really, it might be very difficult for you to make the same decisions and the same thought process because you're just emotionally involved in a completely different way than the way Buffett would be involved. So uh, I just found that that was really fascinating. And is that something that you could, uh, you know, just talk to our audience a little bit more about as far as matching your personality with your investing style? Yeah. So, uh, you know, for example, Buffett is you know, very conscientious. He has relatively low emotional sensitivity. You know, he can um, continue to make very rational decisions, even if he has a lot of losses in his portfolio. He also has a, uh, his motivation for investing revolves around understanding businesses and understanding competitor advantage. So his personality traits let him be more of a longer-term investor that tries to understand the fundamentals of companies. Um, Soros is actually very different. He is more emotionally sensitive. He's a little bit more impulsive. And he motivation for investing is revolves around his philosophy. He tries to prove out his philosophical hypotheses with his investing. And so those kind of traits tend to make him a better trader than a longer-term investor. Myself, I'm more towards the Buffett than uh, Soros, but I don't think I have the as low emotional sensitivity maybe that Buffett has. So, you know, I'm not the kind of person that can take a ton of risk and have all my money in a couple of stocks. Right? I have have modest concentration. So, uh, Ravi, I think a lot of people might be polarized. I know I was for sure uh, when I started out investing. So, what I mean by polarized is that either they are very quantitative. Uh, so they're, they're really based on numbers. All of them might be very qualitative uh, when they're accessing um, stock investing for the first time. Uh, what is your take on that? How do, we, how do we actually blend that? Well, first of all, I think you have to have a blend uh, because we're you know, increasingly competing against computer algorithms in the market and the computer algorithms are obviously much better at just quantitative analysis. And so while well, quantitative analysis is always important, Investors need to increasingly rely on things that the computers can't do well. And there are a lot of qualitative things that they can't do very well. Um, so, for example, computers cannot evaluate how good a uh, management is. Computers cannot, at least at this point, empathize with other market participants and maybe take advantage of their behavioral bias. 
You know, it's funny because whenever uh, I was looking at all these computer algorithms that are calculating and making these trades and you hear about these billionaires with this momentum trading and stuff. And I mean, I think it scares a lot of people because they're like, wow, there's no way I can beat a, a computer. There's just no way I can do it. And I obviously have the exact opposite opinion because at the same time, I read articles about how um, I guess there was an article about Anne Hathaway. And on days that her that this that articles on Anne Hathaway were published, Berkshire Hathaway was traded at a higher level because these algorithms were picking up these articles on Anne Hathaway and it was actually manipulating the trading on these stocks. So I think for a lot of people, it is scary because they they automatically think, oh, there's no way I can beat a computer. Um, There's no way I can beat software that's calculating this stuff. But at the same time, I think a lot of the analytical software that's doing this stuff is doing it on a short term basis. And it's it's trading based off of uh, statistics that it's calculating for today or tomorrow or maybe a week from now and not necessarily something that you would plan on owning for 10 years, which is you know, the, obviously the approach that Stig and I and, and Ravi you know, endorse. Uh, if you're going to own a business, you, you got to treat it like a business. So I just wanted to throw that out there because I find that a lot, a lot of people out there get scared when they start hearing about these computers and things. And it goes back to Ravi's point of just Qualitative analysis is just as important as your quantitative analysis, and you have to balance those two. It has to be a hybrid approach, and you have to be able to call foul whenever you see movement because maybe there's an Anne Hathaway article out there. (laughs) So uh, let's go to the uh, next question. This is one that I was really uh, excited to, to ask you. What is the most important investment advice that you can provide the audience from your time at Karsh Capital Management? Uh, Maybe from like a personal experience or something like that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one and actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 
539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I learned a lot of things when I was at Karsh, uh, but the biggest thing was uh, just to kind of constantly review my mistakes. Most people, when they have a loss, they just kind of take the loss and move on. But um, you know, Michael Karsh, he um, really instilled in me an um, attitude of constantly reviewing uh, and understanding what caused the loss. And so that constant reflection is really what made me who I am uh, today. Yes, you know, one specific example is relatively early in my career there, I would not necessarily think as much about an industry versus a specific company. When their overall industry is improving, the best companies tend to have higher valuations, and so I would tend to stay away from them. The, the worst companies, I would stay away from them just because they're the worst companies. And so I would, I would tend to uh, gravitate towards companies in the middle that were relatively cheaper. But when, when an overall industry is improving, what actually happens is the best companies outperform just because they're the best company, and then the, the worst companies outperform because they go from maybe losing money to making money or um, something like that. And the, the companies in the middle actually underperform. One of the things he taught me was kind of, kind of think about the whole industry and to you know, gravitate more towards the, the best and uh, maybe the worst companies as well. Huh. You know, it's interesting that you say that looking back and looking at your mistakes was the, the most important thing that you learned because uh, Stig and I were just reading a book by uh, Guy Spear. It's called The Education of a Value Investor. And that was one of his biggest points in the book was, don't just move on to the next thing and just keep picking. You got to look at what were my biggest mistakes? Why did they go wrong? Go back and assess all the variables that led to what you missed. What was the critical variable that I missed that led to the demise of this pick? And I, I find that that theme spread through, through people like Monish Pabrai and Guy, yourself, uh, I know Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, all these guys, they're very... Uh, introspective, always looking at how could I improve on what I've done in my past so that I can perform better in the future. So I really like that point. 
And uh, and what's really interesting is that Monish Popry and Guy Spear had like a checklist that they run through with uh, with all the mistakes they had made previously. And yeah. what they actually chose to do was to look at other great investors like Warren Buffett and the mistakes that he admittedly had done as well. Then added that to their list to make sure that they don't make the same mistake as um, Buffett himself. And I think it, that's a really, really strong, say, competitive advantage to have to other investors because it's not fun to look at mistakes. It's not fun to look at what you have done wrong. It's much more fun to look at what you have done good. Yeah. Right. I, I also uh, operate with a checklist. And for, so, for example, when I, you know, I was talking before about uh, when I sell a stock, I have to sell it for uh, a few different reasons. The other things, I'm, I'm very into um, journal writing. And so actually every night I, I try to think about maybe some mistakes I've made uh, either that day or the past. And uh, I try to learn from the mistakes. I think it's very important to give your losses some voice and let, that, let those scars kind of be ingrained in you so that you don't make those, those mistakes again. Yeah, there's two ways of looking at it. You can look at it as, hey, I made a mistake and I don't want anybody to see that. Or you can treat that mistake as one of your biggest gifts in that right. I'm never going to make this mistake again because I learned this lesson and I'm going to annotate it in a checklist or however else you know somebody might incorporate that. And so I look at my biggest blunders as my biggest gifts. Um, and I think that that's very important for a person if they really want to be successful in investing. They've got to treat it that way. They can't treat it as... Uh, you know, something they've got to hide or act like it didn't happen. They need to wear that on their sleeve as a, as a battle scar, I guess. Yeah. And it's like, you know, thousands of dollars worth of, of education, right? Preston? Oh, let me you tell you, there's, there's like lots that. and lots of dollars that have uh, paid for my education. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Ravi, uh, a question that we like to ask to our guest and especially an author like you is which books have influenced you the most? And, Perhaps you can also come with a book recommendation to our audience. Uh, sure. Well, you know, obviously, I think all the Jack Swagger books, uh, the Market Wizard books are great. Uh, on technical analysis, there's a book uh, that I still think is probably the best book on technical analysis from Stan Weinstein. I think it came out of the 80s. It's Stan Weinstein's Secrets of Profiting in Full and Bear Markets. On intuition, the most influential work has been done by uh, Professor Gary Klein, uh, uh, specifically, I think I really like the power of intuition on self and social awareness. I I really like um, emotional intelligence 2.0 by Travis Bradbury. And then you know, just uh, obviously all the Nassim Taleb books and um, Howard Marks's most important thing um, were very helpful. So, uh, Ravi, awesome having you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on here. For anybody that's interested in uh, reading Ravi's book, The Emotional Intelligent Investor, it's a just a fantastic read. Stig and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And if, if you're wondering how psychology and your emotions impact your decision-making in the stock market, you'll definitely want to pick up this book. Um, next week, we have Guy Spear coming on the show. If you have any questions that you want us to uh, give to Guy, make sure that you uh, go to asktheinvestors.com and type that up or record it for us and we'll play it on the air. So our question this week comes from Benoit Defrini, and he asks us, if I have $50,000 to put aside, what do you think about the strategy of taking half of that money and dropping it into a couple different ETFs and then taking the other half of the money and putting it into individual stock picks? So, Stig, what do you think about that question? Uh, the first thing, and, and you know, Preston, I really hate disclaimers, uh, but it really depends on uh, what the person is, who the person is, because if the goal is really to spend little as possible uh, time and energy on, on this, he might as well put 100% into his ETF. 
Uh, and if his goal is really to be uh, proficient, being like at the, not necessarily the next Warren Buffett, but spend a lot of time in, in picking stocks, then the right strategy might be to uh, to put hundred percent into uh, value stocks. Um, but I gotta say that if you want to pursue a strategy with ETFs, um, one thing I would definitely be looking at that is uh, low fees. So that's the the first thing, uh, and the second thing is look at what is the underlying asset. So make sure that you have some really solid underlying assets. And what I mean by solid is I would probably pick you know great American stocks, something like S and P five hundred, for instance. And I would probably not go into more exotic type of investment like uh, emerging markets. So uh, so if you want to pursue ETFs, that's probably the, the two uh, two short takeaways I want to give you. So I guess my advice really comes to what uh, Ravi was talking about in this episode is you've got to really understand yourself, first of all. Um, and you have to be honest with yourself. If you feel like you are really good at accounting and you really understand how to assess an individual stock pick, well, then you know your, your entire portfolio could be individual stock picks because you know how to assess the risk and what could go wrong in, in owning whatever particular stock you pick. But if you're the type of person who doesn't have that firm grasp on all the things that could go wrong, and let me tell you, there's a lot of things that can go wrong in individual stock picks, you probably need to uh, have a larger portion of your portfolio in indexes, if not the entire portfolio in indexes. I also think that what we discussed with Ravi about emotions is really important because if you tend to get very affected by uh, market swings, uh, then you might more go into ETFs. I know that the market can still have like wild swings, but at least I should say you, you lose money with the rest of the population. Yeah. Yeah. I, t- um, I totally agree with that, Stig. I think that if you're the type of person that you already know you're emotionally charged and if you see your account go down by 20% tomorrow and you're going to be really kind of wigging out, uh, you probably need to be more into indexes because you're going to have this psychology, this mindset that um, everybody else lost all that money. So it's not something that I personally did wrong. It's just that the way that the market's moving. Whereas if you invest in an individual stock pick, you're going to be questioning your own ability in order to pick and select the right asset. So um, I think that knowing yourself, knowing how you're emotionally going to react to things um, is vital to uh, making that decision. Okay. So uh, Benoit, fantastic question. I think there's a lot of people out there that are wondering that exact same thing. So we're going to send you a free signed copy of the Warren Buffett accounting book. And we really appreciate you uh, typing up that question for us. So that's all we got for today. Like I said earlier, we're having Guy Spear on the show next week. He is a heavy hitter in the value investing community. So if you don't know who he is, I recommend you look him up on Wikipedia. Um, Also go to asktheinvestors.com and record your question for Guy and he can answer it next week on the show. So uh, make sure that you go there and do that. So thank you so much for joining us this week and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application. 